Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Charles Murray delivers a unique assessment on the value of the bachelor's degree in modern America. Cato's John Samples talks about the Constitution and President Obama's new war in Libya. Peter Ackerman evaluates the factors that have upended Arab governments. And Andrew Morris skewers the hype surrounding green energy. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The United States has successfully killed Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind the attacks of September 11, 2001, and there's been a lot of talk about what that means, what it doesn't mean. I'm here to talk about that and uh, some other things, some conversations that have been started that should have been started some time ago. I'm talking to Ben Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute. He is co-editor of the volume Terrorizing Ourselves, published by the Cato Institute. Malou Innocent is a foreign policy analyst at the Cato Institute. She's co-author of the Cato Report, Escaping the Graveyard of Empires, about Afghanistan. And David Ritgers is a legal policy analyst at the Cato Institute. He's a former special forces officer who served three tours in Afghanistan. Everybody, welcome. Ben Friedman, I want to start with you. There's a lot of people arguing that this was a significant event, that we uh, are somehow safer, though I think a lot of the discussion about uh, the United States being somehow safer because of this particular person being killed. What should we learn and what shouldn't we learn from uh, this event? Well, I think that it's not as important to our defense policy, generally speaking, as you would think it was based on all the attention that we've paid to the event. Obviously, we paid attention to it because it fulfills our sense of justice, and that's a good thing. But in terms of policy, I think it's been overrated. First of all, with regard to the war in Afghanistan, naturally, everyone in the Afghanistan debate is sort of happy to uh, latch on to this. People who think the war is great are saying, see, but really, this had nothing to do with the war. The intelligence that was used came from people that we imprisoned long ago who were in prisons when we got the uh, intelligence and from operations in Pakistan. So it really has nothing to do with the war. I think it, it might be important in helping us draw down from Afghanistan for political reasons in the United States, but I just don't think it really engages many of the intellectual arguments one way or the other. A lot of people are also saying that the event shows that coercive interrogation works, that it's torture. That's wrong. I think that we got some intelligence by uh, from people who were waterboarded, but we don't know how much of the intelligence came from waterboarding itself, nor do we know what they would have said had they not been waterboarded. Perhaps we would have got more intelligence. So you can't really draw uh, valid inferences about torture from this. And then defense spending, we've had people on the right say, well, this shows that our defense budget is great, but of course it doesn't cost very much money to use the capabilities we used here, the intelligence and special operations budgets or a small portion of the defense budget. And then just finally, with regard to Pakistan, I think we knew before this happened that there were parts of the Pakistani intelligence establishment that either looked the other way at terrorists or were actively supporting them. We don't know the extent of it. I don't think we don't know how many people, we don't know how high up it goes. And I think now we just know the same thing. I don't think there's a lot of new information in that regard from the fact that he was where he was in Pakistan. David Ritgers? Well, I'll just weigh in briefly on the issue of torture, waterboarding, enhanced interrogation, there's enough evidence or enough inferences that you can make from what we know from the chain of intelligence that led us to bin Laden to form an opinion either way. And so the debate has become largely theological at this point. The people who believed it was worthwhile beforehand have cherry-picked the pieces of intelligence that they think justifies it after the fact, and the people who thought it was not worthwhile have done the same from their side. And the only way that we'd ever actually settle this debate as far as we could without having the control that Ben mentions, we don't know what would have happened had we not taken this tact, would be to declassify everything so that we'd have all of the false leads that may or may not have been produced by the enhanced interrogation techniques. And, and since I think that that's a bad idea all around, all of the sources, methods, and all of the, the, the red herrings that we got, uh, 
that actually pursuing a full declassification is a bad idea, and this will remain a theological debate uh, and, and one that's, that's largely irrelevant to the larger issues. Malou Ennison. I think that the uh, killing of bin Laden destroyed two sort of pervasive conventional wisdoms within Washington. The first being the safe haven argument, the notion that al-Qaeda cells can sort of take root in these failed or fragile states. As we saw, uh, he was living in an area of Pakistan, a very scenic, hilly region, 30 miles outside of Islamabad, that was essentially in a country that has one of the largest militaries in the world, nuclear uh, power. It wasn't in Afghanistan. We know that al-Qaeda cells were also in Germany and Spain and Florida and also now in Yemen and in Somalia. So I think that sort of destroyed that notion that we need to remain in Afghanistan with a heavy uh, booted foot presence in order to make sure that we create a U.S.-friendly client regime. I think the second sort of conventional wisdom that was destroyed is that we must remain in Afghanistan to keep Pakistan safe. As we've seen in the past several years, a lot of the radicals within Pakistan have made the heavy booted foot presence in Afghanistan cause celebre. And I think by scaling down our troop presence in Afghanistan, we can definitely decrease the traction that a lot of the militants in Pakistan enjoy. David Redgers. Building on the point that a big footprint was not part of this, uh, the operation to get bin Laden, I haven't seen anyone successfully make the case that adding 30,000 troops, largely a Marine contingent to pacify the Helmand province, was in any way related to the operation that killed bin Laden. And we've also seen with regard to the areas where we have pulled our troop levels down in Afghanistan that that has not impaired our freedom of movement, a freedom of action. Take, for instance, the Korengal Valley, the subject of both the movie and the book Restrepo, where we had over 100 American casualties occupying this remote valley uh, where we had an American outpost uh, in a valley surrounded by hills taller than the base where insurgents were able to shoot into the base over the walls, basically an indefensible outpost in an attempt to pacify this valley. We pulled out of that valley after several years of being there, and much to our chagrin, the local insurgents were not neutral between the Afghan government and the Taliban, and in fact, a Taliban camp with some pretty professionalized al-Qaeda trainers set up in the valley. Well, because it's in Afghanistan and not in Pakistan, there was no problem with us using a drone strike to kill a large number of these people, 14 al-Qaeda-affiliated trainers. So I think that the parade of horribles that gets tossed around every time we talk about a smaller footprint in Afghanistan has not come to pass. And in fact, we've already exercised this smaller footprint option with regard to certain areas. It has not hurt us thus far. And I don't see how that's an argument against uh, moving down to a smaller footprint in general. I think a lot of the problem is the fact that this is mission creep on steroids. No one would have imagined that we'd go from, in 2001, trying to punish al-Qaeda and the Taliban to 10 years later, mandating the number of women who can serve in the Afghan parliament. I remember going to Afghanistan last year and talking to numerous people who worked in the development agency and community, and we'd hear story after story about how schools would be built with no teachers to staff them, or how USAID would build a road and the local Afghans would try and chip off the asphalt and use it as insulation for their their homes. A lot of the development projects that we have in Afghanistan simply fall through the cracks, simply because we just do not have the local knowledge. And what David was mentioning about Korngal, I mean, this was a very isolated valley. It had no real beef with the central government until there was the infusion of those essentially foreign troops. Those Afghan troops were foreign troops to these people. And there are thousands of valleys just like Korngal across Afghanistan. And I think a lot of the problem is that when we sort of try and inject what are essentially the central government forces into these low-lying rural subsistence areas, it actually inflames local sentiment, and it actually serves as a handy recruiting tool to many insurgents. Ben Freeman. Bin Laden's death, I think, is just a reminder that large-scale nation-building occupational warfare is not conducive to counterterrorism. It's at best irrelevant, I think, and arguably counterproductive because, as Malou says, it creates enemies, people who didn't have to care about the United States in particular before now do. And beyond that, the idea that these havens are going to pop up, this worst-case scenario in Afghanistan that it will revert to how it was in the 1990s, absent a large U.S. presence, just forgets the fact that Osama bin Laden would have died in the late 90s if we had armed predators then. We didn't. And uh, we couldn't have made a government in Afghanistan then, just as we can now, but we would have killed him. We saw him. Uh, we knew where he was. And, and that's a very big difference. Dave Rickers. Building on what Malou and Ben are mentioning with regard to inserting an American presence where it is unwelcome, I think one of the things that we're in conflict with in Afghanistan is the Afghan constitution itself. 
There's a lack of vertical federalism within the Afghan constitution. There's a proposal last year by a uh, pro-counterinsurgency expert who said that we one thing we could do to jumpstart a better relationship between alienated locals and the, the national government within Afghanistan would be to hold on a temporary basis, hold some localized election to let them choose their own leaders. Well, that's cause for a moment of inflection. If we want the government of Afghanistan to be seen as legitimate, then why aren't they choosing their own local leaders in the first place? And if instead of creating an Afghan constitution that made it very user-friendly from a State Department United States perspective where we have one figurehead to rule them all, where if this was actually a, a constitution and a government structured taking into account the fact that there are people who come from different uh, religions, tribes, and speak different languages and have been at war with each other for 30 years, then perhaps an overarching federal government isn't the best way to go about uniting them, that there should be more federalism within the Afghan society itself. So instead of having government in a box and planting the stamp of the national government, then some more federalism would be useful there. And this is actually very parallel to the arguments that Cato has voiced against uh, the Obama administration in many respects, that, that it's the not just the size of government that matters, but what we're ascribing as responsibilities to that government. And when the federal government does too much, it, it often does too much poorly. Just to dovetail with David's point, I think this is sort of the law of unintended consequences, as we've seen. Right now, the Afghan army and police stand at around 285,000 with an end strength this October of uh, roughly 300,000 that we're trying to get to. But the composition of the army and police matter tremendously. You have an officer corps that's mostly Tajik and Hazara, even though the country overall is predominantly Pashtun. It's a 42% Pashtun. And even Operation Moshtarak last year in Marja, uh, that's a Dari word, meaning together, but it was in a Pashtun-speaking dominated area. A lot of what you have is essentially putting the Northern Alliance in central government uniforms and putting them and injecting them into the southern and eastern provinces. That is a recipe for civil war. So even if we were to scale down, and I believe we will eventually, but when we do, a lot of people are going to ascribe to whatever violence is unleashed to us drawing down. But a lot of that is simply underlying ethnic and cultural tensions, a lot of it because of the central government that we've been backing. And Malou, on the on the subject of Pakistan, you've described uh, Pakistan as not unreliable, but occasionally extremely unreliable. Describe that. I think they've been helpful at times and unhelpful at times. They've been helpful in terms of providing a certain level of counterterrorism assistance when it came to the capture of Abu Faraj al-Libi, when it came to the capture of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Remzi bin al-Sheib. They have been helpful, but at the same time, it's sort of like one step forward, two steps back. They have been quite helpful in trying to create what we've wanted to create in Afghanistan, which is a U.S.-friendly client regime that will pursue and advance our interests in the region. They assist various insurgent groups, not least the Afghan Taliban, also the Haqqani Network, Gobuddin Hetmatyar's Hizbi Islami group, a number of other insurgent groups that attack Indian troops in Kashmir. So they haven't really been the best ally. That being said, I think that the Pakistanis have certain grievances with us, and that's why they refuse to fully cooperate with us. We've had a sordid political past with Islamabad, even during the Cold War. And so in terms of counterterrorism, I think we can pursue that with Pakistan, but I don't think we should blindly believe that they'll toe the line with us on Afghanistan. And as we've seen for the past 10 years, they've pursued their own objectives, usually to the detriment of U.S. policy. Here's a question I just want to throw out there. How does this shift of David Petraeus from his current position to what most likely will be his new position, how does that change things? David? The shift of Petraeus to uh, the nomination for director of central intelligence signifies, I think, a shift in what the main focus of the counterterrorism or counterinsurgency fight will be. And so I think the Obama administration views this, rightly I would add, as becoming an intelligence war rather than one based on counterinsurgency conducted by line troops all over Iraq and Afghanistan. That's a positive development in terms of the focus. Whether he'll be effective or not, I don't know. I'd also add that Petraeus had gotten very vocal in defending the war and making the case for it in public in ways, in my opinion, that were sometimes inappropriate given his job. And now that he's director of the CIA, he can't, or when he becomes director of the CIA, assuming he's confirmed, he's not going to be able to do that. And his replacement will not be as big a public figure as him, and, and it will be harder, therefore, to sell the war to the public. 
It's interesting. I think Petraeus has a very contentious relationship with Afghan President Hamid Karzai, whereas General Stanley McChrystal has a, had a very warm relationship with Karzai. So definitely sort of your relationship with the host nation government matters critically. Also, uh, Petraeus has been a huge proponent of drone operations in Pakistan, which, of course, you know, many Pakistanis don't like, uh, even though they do have the authorization of Pakistani officials. So it'll be interesting to see what will happen uh, within South and Central Asia as a result of his impending possible confirmation. David? And the one thing I would watch out for is if there's a shift in the intelligence assessments, the CIA has long been more skeptical of the ground situation, the ground truth in Afghanistan than the army has. And if Petraeus' move to head the CIA means that the CIA suddenly starts painting a rosier picture of what's going on on the ground in Afghanistan, then that's a negative development where the man responsible for giving us the intelligence is shaping what gets filtered through his agency and reported as ground truth. Just one last thing I want to mention about Pakistan and Afghanistan. I think that Pakistan's behavior underscores the futility of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, we can't eradicate an ideology. In fact, what I try and tell people is that our idea of what a radical means should be thrown out the window when you're talking about Pakistan, simply because you'll be talking to you know active or former military, and they'd be openly sort of sympathetic to the Taliban or al-Qaeda's views, not because they're radicals, but because they truly believe in Osama bin Laden's vision that a American foreign policy is an attack against Islam. And so you find people who are clean shaven, drink scotch, and are totally sympathetic to that cause. And I think that sort of the problem, the underlying problem with Pakistan will continue to persist, but we can't believe that we can fight, you know, local bigoted mullahs in perpetuity in Afghanistan because we want to try and eradicate an ideology. We can't. Ben Friedman, bin Laden was not the only thing found in that house. There was a there were what is considered to be a treasure trove of information, a whole lot of data. What can we draw from that? There was a lot more intelligence there than you'd expect, given uh, how secretive uh, bin Laden was and how long he survived. You'd think he would have practiced better operational security, as they say in the business. But I'll believe that it's a treasure trove of information when the results indicate that it was. So a lot of people in the U.S. government have been saying that, and I don't think we should necessarily believe it off the bat. On top of that, people have been saying, well, this goes to show that bin Laden was still actively running, not just al-Qaeda central in Pakistan, but its affiliates in Yemen uh, and other places. And I don't think the fact that he was communicating proves that he was commanding. I think it is somewhat surprising that he was that in touch with things, if that was indeed the case, but he wasn't running anything. Uh, even al-Qaeda central is still, a, always was, and in, in, uh, particularly lately, was a, is a disaggregated organization of fellow travelers and loose-knit alliances that I think it's confused and confusing to call it a hierarchical organization. All right, folks, we're going to leave it there. Ben Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at Cato, Malou Innocent, Foreign Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute, and David Richter's Legal Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute for a lot of the related materials discussing the ongoing discussion about Osama bin Laden, about our various wars. You can go to our website, cato.org. The bachelor's degree doesn't really tell employers much beyond your ability to get a bachelor's degree. Political scientist Charles Murray argues that many of the reasons for the bachelor's degree have vanished thanks to information technology. So what should replace the BA? Murray offered his take to those gathered at an April Cato Institute City Seminar held in New York. This audience is... Let's face it, you are not representative. Most of you who have children, well, first place, almost all of you went to college. And uh, almost all of your children have gone to college. They've probably been pretty successful at college because the children of parents who have both been quite successful tend to be pretty smart, too. This gets into issues that, the bell curve that Ed doesn't want me to talk about. But the, that's the fact. Your kids are mostly pretty smart. And so college has not been for you probably a uh, bad experience. And even though it's really expensive, some of you in the room who are rich beyond my wildest imagination didn't even notice the tuition. A lot of others are probably like me where, yeah, $40,000 a year is noticed, and it's, it's not fun to pay it, but it's also something we could do. This is not your typical situation with regard to college. 
And this is the typical situation with regard to the college, which has led me to adopt as my battle cry that the BA is the work of the devil. Here are the reasons I say that, and I'm not kidding. First, it is based on a fraud. And second, the BA is based on a con game. And third, the way they go about giving the BA is antediluvian. Let me take those one at a time. First, the fraud part. The college system that we have now exists where you say, well, you've got to go for four years and you've got to get that BA. The reason you've got to be there four years is because you're going to get a liberal education. You aren't simply going to be trained to learn a trade. You are going to become a cultivated human being. Well, I am a big fan of a classic liberal education. There are maybe four colleges in the country which, if you get a BA, you can be fairly confident that that person has gotten a liberal education. And I even say these with qualifications. The University of Chicago and Columbia still have pretty good core curricula. You know, if you get a BA from those places, yeah, more or less a liberal education. St. John's in Annapolis and St. John's in Santa Fe also do the same thing. I don't know of any others. I do know that Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Brown and the rest of them have distribution requirements which are a joke. But that's true of almost all colleges. There have been systematic studies done on this and, and that you can come up with the outlandish examples. The problem is the outlandish examples aren't that atypical. At Duke, for example, you can fulfill your social science requirement by taking a course entitled College Culture and Drinking. <laughs> I heard applause over there. Now, I don't know whether that's for the course or for the concept or what. You have all of these saccharine, wonderful images of a liberal education, and that's not what our children get when they go to college. And to say that they are getting it misrepresents fundamentally what's going on in those schools. A second reason we're supposed to send our kids to four years to get their BA is so it'll be a chance for them to mature and to explore the world. It's kind of a bridge between being an adolescent and being an adult. And, in fact, college did used to serve that function. When you left for college, and this is not being sentimental about the good old days. This is a fairly accurate statement of what college was like for those of you who were in it, let's say, prior to 1965. I guess that's not that many of you. Prior to 1965, in the first place, your relationships with your professors were much closer to a relationship with a supervisor or boss on the job than they were the relationship you had with high school teachers. It was more distant, and there were also a whole lot fewer excuses, which is to say that if the paper wasn't submitted on time, the paper wasn't accepted. And if you missed an exam, as one professor I know used to say, if you missed the exam, you had better have a very good excuse, specifically a death in the family, preferably yours. And if you miss the exam, you know, you flunk the course. More broadly, you were not living at home anymore, and your parents weren't looking after you, and also neither was the college staff, and you were supposed to take care of yourself. That has changed on both counts. You know, you can miss an exam, you can go in and argue for a higher grade because you're so broken up that you got a grade that didn't satisfy you. You have a residential staff, I think the term of art is res staff, that is dozens of people large, even in a small college, and the job of the res staff is to do what your parents do, basically. And instead of becoming a bridge to adulthood, the reality of a great many four-year colleges in this country is it is a way of prolonging adolescence. Okay, so those are the two aspects of fraud. Now the con game part. Why is it important for you to go get a college degree, my child? Well, it's because unless you have a BA, you won't even get interviewed for a job. And if you do get a BA, the econometricians have established that you will get a large wage premium. Both of those statements are empirically correct. What is the con game about it is, those two realities about the advantage of a BA have zero to do with what you learn while you are at college. 
many of you in this room employ people. Somebody comes in and applies for a job at your place and they have a degree in European history. What do you know that that applicant knows that is going to be useful to you and that's the reason you want to have that person working for you? The answer is nothing. Having a degree in a field like that, or sociology or literature, you would know nothing at all about what they've learned. That's not what's important to you. You know two things as an employer because of the BA. You know first that the person has a certain degree of intelligence, and you know that the person has a certain degree of perseverance. That's a really rough screen, but that's what you've got. And how do you more finely calibrate it? You more finely calibrate it by where the degree came from. And so you do look with a special interest, probably, at the graduate of Yale. Why do you do that? Because Yale admitted that person four years earlier as an 18-year-old. And the fact that that person survived the admissions process into Yale means you probably got some good raw material to work with. It's not because you are so convinced that what they learned at Yale made a big difference to you. So, yeah... The, the, you do get a wage premium, but it's not because of anything you learned. And it's also true you do get the job interview, and you are not going to get the job interview if you don't have that BA. Another reality of life. It is a cheap, convenient screen for employers to use, even when holding a BA doesn't have anything to do with what's required for the job. President Obama's intervention in the Libyan civil war raises profound constitutional questions. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution grants the power to declare war to Congress. What does declare war mean in the context of the Libyan intervention? The Cato Institute's John Samples addressed that issue at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in April. I was struck, as I know perhaps many of you were, when you read President Obama's letter that he sent on the Monday after the Saturday beginning of the battle in Libya, his letter essentially announcing what had happened. It begins by saying, I ordered uh, military operations, and then he gives the time and where and so on. But immediately thereafter, when you're expecting sort of, why are you doing this? What is the point? Two things are mentioned. One is the United Nations authorization and some other multinational authorizations, and also the humanitarian rationale for it. Well, that's pretty striking to me, I thought, that the president, in his own mind, it seemed, that the rationale and the authorization for this undertaking came from the United Nations. And it also, at the same time, in the speech, he had taken on a universal jurisdiction, as it were, of protecting foreign nationals, and uh, as he said in his speech later, throughout the world. And what went with it was a kind of authorization that came from a world body. Well, I thought, you know, this is very odd that the president would do something like this, uh, refer to somebody outside the Constitution, outside the United States. So I started looking about this, and it turns out that it is a bit odd, and I want to just talk briefly about that and then suggest what needs to be done. The most likely and most clear-cut example in the past of this happening is, in fact, in the post-World War II period and the first war of that period, the war in Korea. You may recall that the war in Korea began with an invasion of the South. It required quick action and got quick action from President Truman. He never sought, however. They did have a United Nations authorization for defending South Korea, largely because the Soviets were boycotting the Security Council at the time. President Truman never sought. Uh, authorization from Congress. So in fact, he ended up fighting the Korean War solely on the basis of two things. One was the United Nations resolution, and second was the fact that he refused to call it a war. You know, thousands of American lives ultimately uh, lost there and untold treasure and so on, but it was called a police action under the United Nations, and therefore he undertook it in his role purely as commander-in-chief. That is, the commander-in-chief powers were enough for it wrong. The Constitution does not say that there's some kind of after-the-fact 
uh, punishment or reward for having wars. The Constitution has a process that is ex ante. It's before things happen. Congress is supposed to be consulted. We don't have wars and then find out on election day if it was a good idea or not, because you're going to hear arguments about that. Well, the president doesn't have total discretion because ultimately he has to face the voters, but that's not the constitutional process that we have. The other examples that are close to this, uh, this kind of uh, use of the United Nations for armed attacks and use of force, would be the Kosovo example. Now, in 1991, in uh, the Persian Gulf War, the Bush administration did claim, under a United Nations resolution, that they had the power to do it alone. But they did not do it and did not try to undertake the war on that basis. They actually went and got congressional authorization. In uh, Kosovo, in 98 and 99, President Clinton ultimately said that he had the power to conduct the bombing campaign in Kosovo, that it was a presidential power, and this is a little bit different, and quite different from uh, the current situation. He claimed that the ability came and he was transferring the authority to NATO. So ultimately it wasn't just the United Nations, it was a multinational treaty organization, which goes with all the problems of constitutionality, which is you can't have a treaty arrangement, the Senate and the President amending the Constitution. It doesn't work like that, or it's kind of pointless to have a written Constitution. Now, the question is, so we are in a very interesting and not quite unique but important situation, which is this. This is only the second time, I sense, that we have a president claiming solely on the basis of a UN resolution that he can use force abroad. Now, the issue is this, though, in two ways. If it's the second time, there will not be only the second time. There'll be a third and fourth time. The concern I have here is that with the Constitution the way it is, often the defenders of presidential prerogatives, and we've heard this argument from Jack Goldsmith and others this time, that you know the Constitution's kind of ambiguous, but the presidents have been doing this, and since they've been doing it and Congress doesn't say anything about it, well, let's just assume the Constitution's been amended, because it's been amended in practice, really, because Congress didn't show any desire to push back, right? So if this just goes down the pike and nobody says anything, there are no votes in Congress, there, are, there is no uh, attempt to defund or anything, there are going to be more wars like this and there, we are going to essentially see a transfer of the authorization in practice, if not in theory, of war making from the United States to some multinational body or the United Nations Security Council. So what needs to be done? In the past, Congress has at least one uh, chamber or the other has tried to defund or has in fact done so or put limitations on funding. What we need is some pushback from Congress in some way that is a serious political gesture or, of course, ideally, Congress would use its powers that Madison, to finish with where I began, that Madison thought and sadly had great confidence in, it didn't turn out to be true, that the power to control appropriations would be the power ultimately that Congress would exercise over the executives. What explains the swift collapse of what were considered some of the most stable regimes in the Arab world? Peter Ackerman of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict argues that there are several factors of successful civil resistance that can upend even apparently strong regimes. Ackerman spoke at a Cato Institute policy forum on civil resistance and revolution in the Arab world held in April. To a degree, if you want to understand what will happen in Egypt, you need to understand at a certain level, generically, what happened. And so let me define first what civil resistance is. Civil resistance is what people do when they're living under oppression, but they have no viable military option. So they use strikes, boycotts, mass protests to basically challenge the legitimacy and the power structure of the authoritarian on the other side. The theory of civil resistance is that not all people, in, even in a closed society, are equally loyal. As um, Natan Sharansky says, that in these societies there's many, many 
latent double thinkers. And the job of these acts of disruption, which are essentially nonviolent, is to basically allow those who are these latent double thinkers to identify themselves and to figure out ways to mobilize and act where they normally, when things are shut down and quiet, would never think of doing it themselves individually. So let me spend a second now talking about what civil resistance is not, because I've been on a 30-year jihad to try to clear the brush about mistaken notions about this subject, and I'm going to try to do a very, very quick two-minute reprise of that effort. First of all, civil resistance is not nonviolence. Nonviolence is a is an ethical position that people take. Now, certainly, when we think of these movements, we think of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. But at the end of the day, even though they had their own personal prohibitions against the use of violence, it was the disruptive effects of the salt march in India and the bus boycotts in the South that basically made them famous and basically put the kind of pressure on their opponents that basically created the change that they've become iconic for. It is also not about conflict resolution. We're not here, when we talk about civil resistance, about resolving a conflict. We're talking about starting a fight and waging a conflict. So the first order of business is to create pressure of a different variety on an opponent until that opponent rethinks his position or ultimately the opponent has to basically leave the field of battle. Just the weapons are a bit different, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. And um, the strategic theory underpinning how these weapons are used is also a bit different, but not entirely different than would be the case in a violent insurrection. It is also not about democracy promotion. Post the um, end of the Cold War, many wonderful organizations in the United States, NED, NDI, IRI, the Freedom House that I was a chair of, went to the countries that had um, become recently free and shared with them best practices in legal systems, you know, stock exchanges, anti-corruption ideas, rule of law. That kind of democracy promotion is a function of what happens when the battle is over. We're about talking about how the battle is waged. The other thing I would mention to you that Gene Sharp didn't write about nonviolent protest, nor do I, because protest is only one of many tactics available to a civil resistor. These tactics include strikes and boycotts, for example, in South Africa. The most potent weapon used by the anti-apartheid opposition was the consumer boycott, not street protests and not protests uh, around the country. As a matter of fact, my mentor, Gene Sharp, in his book, The Politics of Nonviolent Action, lists 198 different kinds of tactics that one could use. And they basically flow from the nature of civil society and what civil society is in relationship to the authoritarian, what the authoritarian wants to take from civil society. So really, there are basically two kinds of tactics. The first tactic is a tactic of commission. So a tactic of commission is what a civil resistor would do or choose to do that the authoritarian would want to have stopped. So a protest in the street, the authoritarian would want to have stopped. But there's a whole other variety of tactics that are called tactics of omission, which are acts which the civil resistors stop doing that the authoritarian would like them to resume, like a strike or a boycott. Also, it's very important to recognize that civil resistance is not an act of spontaneous combustion. The idea that these things just happen in sort of a rolling thunder and then they all run to the radio station or they run to the palace or whatever and they just sort of overrun the authoritarian is really not the right model. In every one of the successful cases, to the extent that these things were well-planned and thought through and organized carefully, to that extent, they were likely to succeed. Interestingly, civil resistance is also something that regional specialists have been battering somewhere next to zero in their ability to predict them occurring. And so if you look at many of the uh, specialists in the Middle East, they'll tell you they were caught flat-footed by what happened in Tunisia and what happened in Egypt. And one of the reasons is that they write about conditions in those countries and they write about the interaction between elites but this is something that happens from the bottom up, from grassroots, and it's very hard to predict, particularly from people who basically are giving policy prescriptions based on the interaction of elites in those societies with elites, let's say, with the uh, senior elements of American foreign policy. Another important thing to remember about civil resistance is that historically it's been a, it's had a far 
better success rate, in fact, dramatically better success rate than has violent insurrection. There's a study been done by um, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan that appeared in International Security that basically looked at 323 insurrections, both violent and nonviolent, since 1900. Two-thirds were approximately were violent, and their success rate was 27%. And the success rate of the nonviolent insurrections was twice that, was 55%. And also, civil resistance is far more likely, in fact, almost infinitely more likely to lead to a democratic result than would be violent insurrection. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find almost any case of violent insurrection that leads to a democratic result, because usually it's conducted by a very small group of people. And they said, well, gee, I just uh, won this, and since I took all the risk, I'll take all the benefits, and a democratic result doesn't occur. But in the civil resistance movement, the likelihood of success is directly proportional to the number of people who participate. The number of diverse groups, ethnic groups, gender, age, the more participation, the more likely you have success, and the more likely you have the participation, the more likely different elements of society develop habits of cooperation that, of course, are important in creating the rule of law and uh, the kinds of uh, democratic institutions that demand compromise and um, empathy between others. If so-called green energy is so great, why do we need government subsidies, mandated usage, tax credits, and other inducements to give it a leg up on the old-fashioned, polluting, so-called brown energy? Author Andrew Morris is among the editors of Cato's new volume, The False Promise of Green Energy. He spoke at the Cato Institute in April. Energy issues are really important because energy is part of everything we do. For example, a 2008 study done at AEI by Green and Mother found that 46% of the energy we use is used indirectly and embodied in products like pharmaceuticals and other forms of healthcare, food, transportation, and housing. The policy choices we make about energy thus affect not just the size and scope of government, but almost every aspect of our lives through their impact on energy costs. Green energy proponents argue that we need to provide massive federal subsidies and large unfunded mandates to state and local governments and businesses to enable us to radically transform our economy. For example, Ms. Gordon has testified recently before the Senate Subcommittee on Green Jobs and the New Economy that, quote, we are currently in the process of switching our entire energy infrastructure over from capital-intensive, risky, and often highly polluting energy sources to clean, labor-intensive, clean energy sources. It's easy to see why this vision is so attractive. The politicians are so attractive that they want to borrow money from our children so that they can spend it now on this transformation. Clean energy sounds so much nicer than risky and highly polluting energy. Moreover, we're told that we must make this transition or risk being left behind by China. And China, we are assured by the Secretary of Commerce, is investing $12 billion a month in green technology. There's a lot of problems with this view, and I want to just focus on a couple. First, if innovation in green energy is such a great thing, why isn't it happening without the government spending a lot of money and issuing a lot of rules to force people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do? Well, in fact, the historical record shows that we don't need subsidies or mandates to innovate with respect to energy. Innovation in energy is a great thing, and we've seen a lot of it in the past 150 years. For example, an improvement in the quality and quantity of gasoline refined from crude oil, which was termed the octane wars, occurred in the 1920s and 30s, driving the price of 100 octane fuel from $25 per ounce in 1934 to 30 cents per ounce in 1935 per gallon, excuse me, in 1935. Ammonia. The energy used in an ammonia plant today is 30% lower than in a plant, similar plant in 1970. And that's approaching the theoretical minimum for the production of ammonia. Aluminum. The energy per kilogram of smelting fell by 35% from 1960 to 200, and the total energy intensity of aluminum fell by 58%. In steel, energy per ton fell 60% from 1980 to 2006. Between 1900 and 2000, we went from transforming 21% of the energy used to useful outputs when we were engaged in heating things to using 86% while cutting the per unit cost by more than two-thirds. I could go on and on and on. In every area we use energy, we have become more efficient, and we've become more efficient without 
government subsidies and mandates. So the first question that I think green energy proponents need to answer is why allowing this process to continue is insufficient. In other words, why is the strategy that succeeded for more than 100 years in the United States and elsewhere need to be set aside in favor of a strategy of using the political process to choose energy technologies? And that question is hard to answer. The political strategy has been tried and it's failed miserably. In centrally planned economies from Europe to Asia to Africa, energy technologies have been chosen through the political process and have not worked. When the, where the 20th century saw a proliferation of bad designs, horrific pollution, and unreliable energy, that was mostly in cases where the political process was used to choose the technology. In our own country, the disastrous 1970s Sinfuels program is an excellent example of this. So that answer leads us to the second problem. What green energy proponents are actually proposing to do, despite the rhetoric, is to borrow money from our children and grandchildren and turn it over to politically well-connected corporations like General Electric, which managed the amazing feat of landing a CEO in the White House and paying no federal income tax in the same year as his profits soared, maybe those were not coincidental events, and Archer's Daniel Midland, which has been successfully farming the federal government for decades. Today's feeding frenzy is close at hand, but this is not something that's unique to the Obama administration. This is the bipartisan history of government-run energy policies in the United States. Now, that's not what Ms. Gordon is going to say she wants to accomplish, but it's what green energy proponents have managed to accomplish thus far. Green energy programs are classic examples of what Bruce Yandel termed a bootleggers and Baptist coalition in an article he wrote for Regulation Magazine back in the 1980s for Cato. A bootleggers and Baptist coalition is named after the groups that secured the Sunday closing laws that forbid liquor sales in much of the South. Bootleggers like the restriction on legal liquor sales because it closes the stores that compete with them. But they cannot persuade politicians to adopt pro-bootlegger policies aimed at raising prices for consumers without a reason that sounds good to voters. The Baptists in this implicit coalition provide the cover story. They offer a plausible reason to vote for the Sunday closing laws other than lining the pockets of the bootleggers. In the green energy debate, green energy proponents play the role of the Baptists, providing ideological cover for the looting of the current and future taxpayers by the likes of GE and ADM. Now, I don't think that the Center for American Progress, Ms. Gordon, or most of the other proponents of green energy actually intend to pour money into GE's or ADM's pockets, but that is what the record of green energy programs is, and that is what always happens when politics determines what technology we use. So let's look at one specific green energy program that almost no one thinks is a good idea today, although many people on the other side used to think it was a great program, corn-based ethanol. As virtually everyone but Congress and the White House know by now, corn-based ethanol is a terrible fuel. It costs more than gasoline, it has lower energy content than gasoline, it causes environmental degradation as growers respond to the subsidy to produce more corn by increasing fertilizer and pesticide use and seriously overuse water resources. It's corrosive and damages engines, pipelines, and other infrastructure when it's transported, stored, and used. And it yields a tiny positive zero or negative net gain in energy depending on whether we're having a good year for corn or not. And, worst of all, it dramatically raises the price of food for the poor. Now, it's a great fuel for just one thing. It makes huge amounts of money for ADM and for corn farmers in the Midwest. And it's a really costly way to do that. A Cato study found that it costs each of us $30 to put $1 in the pocket of ADM. Now, I'd be happy to give ADM a dollar if they'd let me keep the other 29. Now, no one advocated such an utter failure of an energy policy thinking that's how it was going to turn out. Rather, when corn-based ethanol was introduced, we were promised everything that we are promised today from other green energy programs. We were told that ethanol would make us energy independent, it would produce a cleaner environment, and it would produce lots of good, high-paying American jobs. But failure is what we got from the green energy crowd before, and we will get it again if we listen to today's proponents. Let me illustrate why. In 2005, the famous maverick, Senator John McCain, voted against the entire energy bill because of the corn ethanol provisions, which he denounced. In 2006, the famous maverick, John McCain, declared ethanol a vital energy source, having decided that the votes of Iowa corn farmers were more important than principle. Leaving energy policy to politicians is simply a bad idea. I won't just pick on ethanol. It's not the only bad energy choice we've made through politics. U.S. energy policy has been about exactly the things that the green energy crowd talks about today. Energy independence, creating American jobs, and keeping up with scary foreign countries like China since at least World War II. In that time, we've seen politicians promise the 100 billion Sinfuels program in the 70s would create clean transportation fuels from coal using American workers in high-paying jobs, and they didn't produce a drop of energy. 
For decades, we've given subsidies to domestic oil and gas producers and favored refiners in politically well-connected districts and imposed restrictions on imported oil and gas aimed at preserving American jobs and protecting us from foreign competition. We created a system of oil import permits in the 1960s that produced the first meeting of the oil producers organization that went on to become OPEC talk about counterproductive policies, raised energy prices and led to silly schemes like the infamous Mexican merry-go-round in which Mexican oil was unloaded from tankers onto trucks in Brownsville, Texas, driven back into Mexico around a traffic circle and then back into Texas so that it could technically be considered imported by land, thus qualifying it as for an exemption from the quotas. We have energy bills every few Congresses that always contain provisions designed to raise and provisions designed to lower the price of energy. This wretched legislation is unified only by its theme of doling out favors to the well-connected and its disregard for consumer welfare. We've been subsidizing the current flavor of the month, solar, for decades. Jimmy Carter promised us 33 years ago that by the year 2000, we would get 20% of our energy needs. That's 20% of our energy needs, not our electricity, from solar. We didn't. Faced with this astounding record of failure by the political system in picking technologies, green energy proponents tell us only it will be different this time. This time, the money will go for good technologies, not bad. This time, the money will not go to GE, ADM, and the politically well-connected. This time, politics will choose the right technology. Now, I don't think there's any reason to think that our political system is better today than it was in past decades. We don't have a better breed of leaders who are less beholden to special interests. We don't have wiser leaders now who are better able to see past their fundraisers' needs. What we have is what we've always had, a flawed human beings driven by their need to be reelected to raise campaign contributions and to do favors. They will do what they have done every time they've considered energy policy over the past 60 years. They will vote to give money to their friends and to take it away from their enemies. These are systemic problems, certainly not unique to energy, but ones that disqualify the political process from being capable of making choices about choosing technology. But the response to such criticisms is usually that this time we're in a crisis. This time is different. Even as we've been told over and over, we're in a crisis. We don't have time to go through the history of bad energy predictions, so let me just give you two numbers. In 1972, the predict consensus prediction was that we would be using 140 billion barrels of oil per year by 2000. In fact, we were using just 26 billion. The prediction in 1970 was that we would use 1,750 billion barrels of oil between 1970 and 2000. In fact, we used less than 700 billion. We simply have a very bad record of predicting through the political process. Now let's turn to the problems with the specific technologies advocated by green energy proponents. Wind and solar energy someday may provide significant amounts of energy for our society. They do not do so today for two reasons. First, they are expensive compared to the alternatives. That's why we need subsidies. If you compare natural gas and solar panels, approximately 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas at a cost of about $4 can generate the same amount of electricity as running an average rooftop solar system for 131 days, as Jerry recently wrote in his Forbes column. Natural gas also has the advantage that it can be used at any time of day, at any time of year, can be stored until it's needed, and both the United States and the world have a lot of it. Now consider wind. Earlier this week, the Department of Interior announced the approval of the Cape Wind Offshore Wind Farm, more than 10 years after Cape Wind first began seeking such approval. Of course, one reason it took 10 years was that it was a heavily politicized approval process with noted green energy advocate, the late Senator Ted Kennedy, fighting the project because he thought it would spoil the view from his home. That's the sort of NIMBY attitude that affects many of our uh, these projects. Now the energy from Cape Wind that will be sold to just one utility is going to cost 1.2 billion more than the same amount of energy from conventional sources, a cost that Massachusetts ratepayers will have to pay without receiving any benefits. And despite a Massachusetts law requiring utilities to use renewables for 20% of their power needs by 2025, Cape Wind has found buyers only for half its output thus far. Moreover, there are what the AP referred to in its story on this as dozens of lawsuits filed against the project by, ironically, environmental, historic preservation, and other groups. Renewable energy is also expensive for taxpayers. The Energy Information Administration at DOE estimated in 2007, before the latest round of subsidies and spending, that subsidies for solar were $2.82 per million BTU compared to $0.04 cents for coal and $0.03 cents for natural gas. 
Now, these subsidies are so generous that wind farms in Texas regularly sell their power at negative prices. That is, they pay people to take the energy. During 63% of the days during the first half of 2008, according to the American Wind Energy Association, which hardly would be inclined to overstate this. Now, subsidies are wrong whether they're for oil or for solar, but it's no argument for subsidies for green energy that solar and wind should get them because others have received them. The correct reaction is when we've identified a subsidy, we should eliminate it. The second major problem for renewables is that they require unacceptable infringements on the rights of others. When I lived in central Illinois, a windy spot where wind farms are sprouting, many residents are seeking to zone out further wind farms near their homes because of what they view as unacceptable impacts from noise pollution to shadow flicker to the deaths of birds and bats. Where my in-laws live in rural west central Texas, a public power authority is taking land by eminent domain to construct at public expense a transmission line to bring expensive wind power from the panhandle to the eco-paradise of Austin, damaging the environment with blasting that harms springs and wells and infringing on the property rights of ranchers and homeowners. Those in the path don't like it, but they are far outnumbered by the voters in Austin, and that's in Texas. All forms of energy require trade-offs. No one wants to live next to either a coal-fired power station or a wind farm, it turns out. But clothing particular forms of energy production with governmental power is wrong, whether it's coal or wind. The third reason that renewables have not taken off is that all kilowatt hours are not created equal. When power is generated, turns out to matter a great deal as power storage technology is in its infancy. Renewables are greatly inferior to natural gas, coal, large hydro, and nuclear in this regard. The Texas Electric Reliability Council, or ERCOT, which has a great deal of experience with wind, rates wind power at just 8.7% of its nameplate capacity because the wind blows so infrequently. Worse, a study done by GE, which has a huge investment in the success of wind, for ERCOT, which also has a huge investment in the success of wind in 2008, found that wind power peaks were anti-correlated with load across all seasons. That is, wind produces the most energy at the time we need it least. Wind power is also inherently and unavoidably variable. That same GE study, done by a company reaping a fortune from green energy programs, found that the variation in one-minute loads were 14.9% greater with the addition of 15,000 megawatts of wind power to the ERCOT grid compared to with just 5.4% greater with the addition of 5,000 megawatts. What that means is adding more power to the system increases the problem it creates. We can handle a little bit of wind with our system. We can't handle a lot. And wind power creates even larger variations for five-minute and one-hour periods. Adding wind thus increases not only the net load variability, but the amount and size of the extreme variations. Variation is costly to deal with. It requires more transmission lines, more costly intelligence built into the network, and more costly backup capacity from non-renewable sources. And similarly, solar energy has, has problems because it's available only when the sun shines. As a result, wind and solar systems require essentially that we build a parallel system of power generation to replace them when they're not operating. Finally, green energy proponents make much of the fear that China will surpass us in renewable energy technology. I find China to be a curious role model for green energy advocates. Over the next two years, China will install over 50 gigawatts of new coal power plants each year. Its coal output has grown from 1.3 billion tons in 2000 to 2.72 billion tons last year. It's also planning to build 100 new nuclear power plants over the next 10 years. Indeed, China itself projects that its future power needs will be met by 60 25% from coal, 20% from hydropower, mostly from some of the most environmentally damaging large hydro projects like the Three Gorges Dam, 5% from nuclear, and just 7% from wind. In particular, China is planning to make the exact same kind of investment in nuclear power, which it is also planning to export, that it is making in wind. Would this be a reason to subsidize nuclear power? Very few green energy proponents would agree. Moreover, Chinese utilities, which make these decisions, are owned and operated by the Chinese government. They sell power below cost, discouraging conservation. They promote the, the uh, growth of relatively dirty industries like steelmaking, and they operate within a system of politically determined decision making that doesn't fit with our economy. Surely in raising the specter of China, green energy uh, advocates are not proposing we mimic all of Chinese energy policy, but they don't really explain how this part is different.
This is exactly our choice between a system that chooses technologies based on which commands the support of the political elite or a system that allows decentralized market decision making by individuals to determine the outcomes. What can we do to improve energy technology? I don't like to be completely negative, although I'm sort of a negative guy. First, we can end all subsidies for all forms of energy. Subsidizing any energy is expensive and destructive to real innovation, and so we should get rid of all the subsidies. Second, if we're concerned about encouraging technological development in energy, we have a cost-effective alternative to subsidies, mandates, and regulations. We can offer prizes for technological innovations that meet specified benchmarks. For example, the X Prize has done this for spaceflight. Prizes have a great advantage over subsidies in that you don't spend any money until someone actually delivers the goods. Subsidies, on the other hand, seem to go on forever. Third, we should get the government out of the business of picking winners and losers. The government's record over the past 60 years in picking energy technology in the United States has been an unmitigated disaster. We should let energy consumers choose their own suppliers, we should let energy producers innovate, and we should let the marketplace choose the winners and losers. Want to instantly access Cato's online resources when you're on the go? Now with our new iPhone and Android apps, you can. Whether you want to read the most recent blog post or listen to the day's podcast, you now have Cato Institute resources in the palm of your hand. Visit the Android Marketplace or iTunes today to download the free app. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.